0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for The Future of Higher Education. I'm your host, David Feingold, and I'm here today continuing my conversation with John Sexton, President Emeritus of New York University. John, great to be with you.
1: Good to be with you again, David.
0: So, so John, maybe we could resume talking about your decision to uh, become the president of NYU. So how did that come about? Had you thought about becoming a college president before? Did the board approach you? Obviously, they knew you from your successful tenure as the dean at the law school.
1: Interesting background to that. Uh, there there came a time sometime about uh, 12 or 15 years ago when I got a phone call from a remarkable young woman, a reporter a columnist, a writer for The New Yorker. And she said, uh, I, I, we want to do a profile on you. We're going to do it whether you cooperate or not. Uh, <laughs> nice what, invite then. Would, would you like to cooperate? And I said, well, I guess I should have my, my part in shaping it. <laughs> and she said, well, I find it very, very interesting that, among other things, you always wanted to be a university president. And I said, well, that is a remarkable way to start, since that's utterly and completely wrong. <laughs> uh, what makes you think that? And she said, well, I've read your doctoral dissertation. <laughs> I said, whoa, 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 you read my doctoral dissertation? And then I realized that there in 1965, 1966, uh, as I was wrestling with something that will become important later on in our story, I I realized that in a way that was probably instilled by the iconoclasm of Charlie and my experience in competitive debate over the 20 years I worked with that forum, um, that, that I as a religious person had become extremely interested in how important the intellectualization in doctrine and dogma of the tremendous human experience that is the religious experience, how important that connection was. Uh, uh, This is my first wrestling with dogmatism. And I had decided as a student of religion in, in the context of the Vatican Council to take on that issue in a way. I don't think I was so conscious of what I was taking on, but I knew that I didn't believe that doctrine was fixed. Uh, For those that want to do a quick flash forward, think of this as an early version of what I later came to understand as the debate between Justices Scalia and Brennan about whether or not the Constitution should be interpreted as a snapshot of the frame as intent and in, or as a living document, as John Marshall called it, and as Brennan Sword, more of a moving picture. So in any case, uh, I, I had decided to ask in my doctoral dissertation the question: did the Unitarians succeed in creating a dogmaless religion? And since the Unitarians have no formal theologians, and William Ellery Channing had been written about a lot, I asked my mentor to suggest, you know, a notable Public intellectual who was a Unitarian that I could use, and he said, "Why don't you look at Charles Eliot?" Hmm. Now, Charles Eliot was the president of Harvard for forty yeah. years. He made the modern the Harvard. You know, he created it. He was the first citizen of America. And I did my doctoral dissertation, on it, and it had led this woman to think that I had had this abiding <laughs> interest. You know, it was really a kind of accident of my early life that I had then put on a shelf and moved on with a self-definition as a a teacher, Mm -hmm. uh, or as I said to you before, a possibilitarian. Uh, So um, I, I came to NYU in 1981, principally because Lisa and I decided, she having worked at the White House, I having worked at the Supreme Court, that we wanted to settle as a family in New York. And um, there was a possibility of my joining the Harvard faculty, the the Yale faculty, the Columbia faculty, all of which were top five law schools at the time. Uh, At this point, I knew I wanted to be a law professor. Uh, NYU at the time was clearly a top 20 school, maybe a top 15 school. It was not a top 10 school. The minute I walked into the courtyard of the main building of the law school, I called Lisa and I said, this is the place for us, Greenwich Village, New York. This is where we want to raise our family. This is one where we want to live for the rest of our lives. And when I joined the NYU faculty in 1981, I knew that I would be on that faculty for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was, uh, I didn't seek to be Dean. If you'd asked me, how will you be on the faculty? I would have said as a professor. Yeah. Uh, and uh uh, in a way, I, I was an accidental dean in 1988, uh, and around 1997, uh, the, the community of NYU Law School had galvanized behind a very powerful and fairly novel view of itself, and we were succeeding for those to whom that view was attractive. At, at recruiting in a way that had never really been done before at at the very top law schools, the leading faculty, not just faculty, but leading faculty from a list of the eight law schools we admired most that we had made up in 1988. and, And about three dozen faculty, and law faculties are relatively small, you're talking about faculties of 80 or 90 people total, about three dozen of the leading faculty of those eight schools had left them to come to us. And no one, there had been no out migration and the young people began to come, junior faculty, and then the students began to follow. So it was an extraordinary galvanization for the right people, this idea of matching with the right people. and and NYU moved rapidly into uh, I, I used to say one of the eight schools that could claim to be in the top five, and then it became <laughs> one of one of the five schools that could claim to be in the top three, and and then now today, uh, many many years later, I think it's uh, it is it is objectively, by the way, I should say, I think for three or four straight years running, the most cited. Law faculty of any law faculty in the world in other people's work. Uh, and uh, arguably, it's uh, the leading faculty in the world. But it's certainly, NYU is one of the four or five schools, or maybe two or three schools, that can claim to be the best in the world, uh, depending on what your norms are. So by 97, that was pretty much beginning to appear as, if not the reality, where the law school was heading. Uh, and uh, uh, the trustees of the university began to push me to uh, move from being the dean of the law school to being president of the university and uh, uh, a great, great man. I was, I was blessed for all 28 of my years, 14 as dean and 14 as president to have the same board chair, uh, Martin Lipton. And, and, and uh, interestingly, in the choice of the dean in 1988, he had opposed me. Not be, He didn't know me, but he had a more favorable view of another candidate. We quickly became inseparable in our agenda for both the law school and subsequently for the university. And, and he came to me in 97. It was, I remember vividly, January 97, and announced to me as only a person of his stature, as perhaps the leading lawyer in the world. He said, uh, Larry Tish, the then then chair of the board, he didn't tell me he and Larry had agreed he was going to succeed Larry. (laughs) He said, Larry Tish and I have decided uh, uh, that you should move over to be president. And I said to him in that conversation, that's a very, very bad idea. Uh, First of all, uh, I'll, I'll stipulate for the record, I've been a successful dean but you don't understand why. I'm, I'm the parish priest of the law school. I know the names of the children of every faculty member, every, every, every security guard, every, every person that works in the cafeteria. I know the first names of 90% of the students. And they come to me, and about 40% of my time is spent giving them pastoral advice. And, and that's tremendously fulfilling for me. And uh, it can range from marital advice to advice about a child to, an, to advice about an illness. And if I've helped you with a marital problem and I go into your office and ask you to teach an extra section of civil procedure, you're going to do it. I, it's an effective leadership technique. And, and uh, I have a lot of moral authority. But I was put on earth to be a parish priest, not a cardinal. A cardinal's a cartoon. Uh, there are seven thousand faculty. There are, at the time, 60,000 students at NYU. I won't know the names of all well, the faculty members, let alone their children, and I certainly won't be giving them pastoral advice. And, and, so you're you're misdiagnosing why I'm an effective leader, uh, and and it's not transferable. And also, I have no interest in in being the president of the university, the Jesuits taught me to be a person for others, to live a useful life. I can see why creating Tocquevillian, Jeffersonian lawyers with souls can make a difference in society because of the powerful instrument of law. I don't see where making NYU better uh, moves the, the dial of goodness in the world at all. I I don't see it. And I know that I will miss deeply in my life, the pastoral work, which will disappear. And I know that Lisa and I have built our lives such that there's no room in it for what the university should expect a president to do. So I will not uh, ever And we will not as a couple ever accept a dinner invitation from anybody associated with NYU. We are not going to be one of these trophies that's passed around in New York. And I will not ever, and we will not as a couple ever entertain in our home. And my evenings are for my teaching and my family or for university events that are required. I mean, if there's a university awards dinner, I'm going to go to that obviously, but, uh, and I don't attend black tie dinners. I only own one suit and uh, I'll barely ever wear that. Uh, so there's a whole host of things. And by the way, there are virtuous, good people who aspire to be presidents. And, you know, that's not what I aspire to be. I aspire to be with my, 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 my students and so forth. So uh, that was 1997. And uh, there was quiet on all fronts uh, for about three years. And then in August of 2000, there had been a tragedy at the university. we had had a very good man, and still at that moment, had a very good man as our president, uh, Jay Oliva. He had succeeded John Bradamas. And Jay was not only a good man, but a good president, a, a good friend, and, and, and he had been the right man at the right time for NYU, but uh, uh, this tragedy had thrown him a bit and it, it was clearly a time for change. And the deans, uh, the deans said to me, because they knew that I had no interest in being dean and they knew that I was very close with Martin Lipton, who now had become the chairman of the university board, And they said to me, uh, you should go to Marty and tell him that we support a change at this point. And we actually had developed two or three names and said, what you want to do is bring one of these people in as a consultant with an understanding that he or she will become the next president and let them kind of shadow Jay for a year because nyu is a singularly complex place so that, that was the proposal of the deans and and i went up with the names of one man interesting that man's name was lee bollinger who was then the president ah, of yeah. michigan and, and 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 two women and uh I, I presented this to marty and we were across the desk maybe five feet from each other and he looked at me i love this man uh, and this is a conversation that, although it drained me, I remember vividly. Uh, he said, uh, you, ha- you and the deans have the right diagnosis, but the wrong prescription. The time has come for you to be president. A- and, and I looked at him and I said, Marty, uh, we're brothers and, and dear friends. Uh, I've told you that's a bad idea for me and for the university. Uh, and he looked at me with his piercing eyes and he raised his hand with one, just the index finger extended and, and, and said to me, this chilled me. He said, it doesn't make any difference what you say in the end, you're going to do this out of duty. And as my bl- blood drained, I said to him, uh, don't push our friendship that far. You may be very disappointed in the result. And he said, we'll talk about it next week. And I left. I called Lisa and she said to me, uh, she later told me she really thought this was a good idea, <laughs> but, but she never said that as I went through months of yeah. making the decision. Uh, uh, she said, Marty's always been there for you and your uh, ideas. You owe him a full airing of this and 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 then there came a moment uh, you cut me off if you think i'm going too long here but but no this
0: it, is is fascinating
1: no it's great. A, so so there came a moment at, uh, sometime around november the the rumors were circulating because i had reported back to the deans and we were still pushing this idea of these yeah. three people uh, all all three of whom later became very distinguished presidents i will point out so you had good picks yeah 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 uh, so so, so uh, uh, in, in any case, uh, uh, around November, I think it was four. I've, I, I've checked with one of the four whose name is Marcel Kahan, who is one of the leading corporate scholars in the world and is still on the NYU law School faculty with me. Uh, I think there were four and, and uh, I think the other three, were extremely distinguished people later in their careers. They were distinguished then as professors. Yeah. Four of my young stars, uh, tenured, you know, five years in, came in to see me together, and they said, "We hear these rumors. You must stay as dean of the law school." Now, <laughs> mind you, this was my thirteenth year. You must stay as dean of the law school because we're doing something special here, and 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 uh, the but the roots aren't deep enough. We need another four years or so. And I looked at them. Uh, now, mind you, while still on the faculty, one of them went on to be the dean of Stanford and then after that, the head of the Hewlett Foundation, which is what he is today. One of them went on to be the dean of Chicago and now is the president of the University of Oregon. And the other went to Princeton, where he became provost and then the first Princeton president in the modern error without a PhD. He's now the president of Prison. So this was a talented group, you know (laughs) and 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 they're telling me I got and I looked at them and I said, Gentlemen, uh, you've just convinced me the time has come for me to leave. Next year will be my last year as dean. You're you're articulating a definition of codependency here. (laughs) if I haven't seen yeah, whatever I've had to contribute, probably I was done with it, like three or four And, and of course leaving became the most important thing to do. And I then was succeeded, and, and, and for 14 years, completely absent from the law school. I wouldn't even let people talk about it with me. And uh, when I came back 15 years later, it was, it, it was a much better law school than I left it. That They had pruned some of the ideas that probably weren't as good as we thought they were. They had planted new trees. So uh, that was a catalyst. That didn't mean I should go to be president. Uh, maybe I should just go to a monastery for a couple of years. But, but uh, by March of now 2001, something had happened that galvanized my view of the worthiness of NYU as a possibility to be a special kind of good in the world. Mm-hmm. And that was a man named Dan Doktoroff and a man named Jay Kriegel. And I began at Dan's primary interest so of the pie chart of this. Dan was maybe 80 percent. Jay was 18 percent and I was 2 percent. But I got to be a voyeur in a way as they dreamt of getting the Olympics to New York. And here's where I, again, accidentally became the right person. Because first of all, I'm, uh, uh, I'm instinctively teleological. The, the, you know, the Jesuits have this phrase, Ratio Studiorum, that in a classroom, in a school, whatever, you, you have to know why you're, you're doing something. What is the academic purpose of it? And, and if you go back and look at my installation speech uh, for president, I, I, I make that point, and I didn't know at the time what the teleology would be. But I said, "Damn it, we're going to be able within a couple of years to explain what the teleology, what the special—you know—in business they call it the, dif- the differentiating principle, or you know, whatever." Yeah. Uh, so so if we're going to explain that to people. Right. We have a duty to articulate it if we're given this deep privilege and vocation of stewarding. Uh, 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 an educational orchestra and that'll go to every sinew of what we do. So, so um, what, what happened? I, 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 I was that kind of person. I'm almost a synecdoche for New York and, and NYU is not just New York in its name, but it has no campus yeah uh and and it's it's spread throughout short and pepper throughout the city which we had seen as a liability uh no uh, you know columbia the other great school in new york uh uh among research universities uh it, it uh has this it has beautiful a campus, campus. Yeah, yeah 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 Yeah. so so uh uh the fact that i was the, a New Yorker and understood it in its soul allowed me maybe to see overlapping Venn diggers with NYU that others might. And then I'm a storyteller. And in the best sense of the word, uh, a myth maker because uh, Americans use myth for falsehood, but myth in the Greek sense and the deep religious sense of mythos. And, and uh, so, like and, and Dan was giving me data in these conversations around the Olympics that I, that I, it it verbalized something that I, I instinctively knew as a New Yorker. So I remember when he came to breakfast with Jay and me one morning and he said, New York is the first city in the world that has a neighborhood for every country in the world populated by people who were born in that country. And yet those people, when you go out to whatever little it is, say that they're New Yorkers. Now, to me, this resonated with Teilhard de Jardin and with John the Twenty Third, because there was the wonder of multiplicity, uh, not to be tolerated but to be embraced and 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 seen as giving you a chance to see the many parts of God's creation theologically. But here it was in a secular sense. And I said, my God, NYU is in and of that city, so we can make NYU the first ecumenical university Meaning, embracing the many facets of a diamond as a way to look at the world rather than simply the window you're given, which is the drill I had run theologically over right. the previous decades. So, so, so I said, New York City is the first ecumenical city in a secular sense, and, and why you can be the first ecumenical university. A- and that began to unfold a story of New York which was well beyond the diversity conversation it was it was really the ecumenical <laughs> conversation and from that flowed very quickly a 2.0 which was the study away sites because why would we insist that we have interaction only with those who have come to us why wouldn't we go for an interaction which wasn't missionary work it was a genuine interaction yeah. on their terms and then uh, 3.0 was, uh, well, wait a minute now. Yes, we have the five or six fully integrated study away sites in Europe and South America and Australia and China and so on. Where's the Arab and Muslim world? Yep. And that from that grew the idea of a full campus, which would be a training ground for ecumenical, secular ecumenical leaders in the world in Abu Dhabi, which was a shared vision. That's a whole different story yeah. with the ruler in Abu Dhabi. And then the Chinese saw what we did in Abu Dhabi and asked that they could come. And that was 4.0, which was NYU Shanghai as a full campus. And then 5.0 was knitting it all together technologically, which has been with all the horror of this last year and COVID, yeah. uh, the advances that have been made. I, I mean, just to put a, Final point on this, and then you take it wherever you want. This notion of the global network university, and it was Dan Doktorov who said to me, these are not branch campuses. This is a circulatory system. It's a network, uh, okay? It's fully, the the blood circulates through it, just as faculty and students and so forth do. The, the, The three main pillars, New York, Abu Dhabi, and Shanghai, and the other 15 study away sites where people could go and fully immerse themselves in their full facilities and connectivity and and, and so forth and so on. So uh, in this last year of COVID, you put an overlay on that. They were already giving courses, uh, cities by the sea on five continents. But now what happened was they complemented that and NYU was unique in this. So just to, they created a program called NYU Local. So all of those students that couldn't get visas to come to the United States or because of COVID restrictions couldn't travel to the United States, they could go to a local global network campus. So when you aggregate, remember, NYU is a huge university, so that's uh, with all, all of this, this probably 75,000 students, uh, but most of them are in New York, probably uh, 65,000 or even 70,000 of that 75,000, well, with the study away, probably 65,000, they are New York students studying away. There are a lot of Chinese who study in New York, undergraduate and graduate, but they couldn't get into the United States. Yep. 2,400 native Chinese students ended up at NYU Shanghai, taking live classes. So this is the power of this idea, which has now been accelerated through things like Zoom and uh, the, the 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 remote classes. Great. And it all flows out of Dan Doctoroff, combined with Charlie, combined with Marty Lipton pushing me to come back to your original question to reflect upon something that notwithstanding what the young woman, Rachel Aviv at the New Yorker thought, I had never thought about doing before. And if you had asked me what the chances were a year before, uh, not 1997 when Marty first raised it, but a year before August, 2000, when he pointed that finger at me, I would have said the chances are less than 2%.
0: <laughs> Great. So, John, I, I want to d- dig deep into the Global Network University, but before we do, I just want to touch on a few points in what you said, just to clarify. So, first, Dan Doktorov, what 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 was his position or his role in in this conversation?
1: Good friend, one of the most creative, uh, imaginative thinkers I've ever met. Uh, a, a person who, by the time he and I became friends, this is. The, which was in the early 90s, was uh, already an enormous success and had turned his attention to dreaming for New York. He had not yet become the deputy mayor for economic development under Mike Bloomberg, but he was very close to Mike. Uh, When I say he had not yet become, I mean, when he began thinking of the Olympics as his passion, which was the late 90s, uh, it was still Dan as public citizen. Okay. And uh, he served Mike for eight years as uh, deputy mayor for economic development. Then he left and went and ran Bloomberg for Mike. But when Mike came back, Dan left and went out again doing more public service. But among other things, he was the force behind the a great architectural center on the West, a great architectural and artistic center on the West side called the Shed, which is a, a center for avant-garde art. But he, he's one of the great public citizens of our, our time.
0: Super. Um, and then you, you mentioned your journey with NYU started back in 81. When you saw the campus, you decided this was the place for you. Well, my dad had joined and NYU, I mentioned to you first residence of the Silver Towers, and 1980 was when New York City was going bankrupt. So it it wasn't a high point for New York. What what was it about looking around and being there in 1981 that said, you know, I, I shouldn't be looking at Harvard or Yale, but but NYU.
1: Well, to give you a a, a sense, just to put a point on what you say. Uh, in, in 1979, when I was making the decision, I ultimately joined in, in 81. Uh, but, uh, of the group of us that were clerking at the Supreme court, there were 32 and New York still, if you asked what are the 10 great law firms in the world, all 10 would be in New York at that point. And, uh, if you're a clerk at the United States Supreme Court, you want to go to a law firm. You're in a seller's market. There's sure. you know it's like getting a Rhodes scholar for your, yeah. you know, junior faculty or something like that. Uh, I was the only law clerk from my cohort to come to New York. Period. End of case. So that's the situation. Wow. <laughs> you know you, you know so some became academics, but the others that went to law firms did not go to these top yeah. 10 firms. So so that's remarkable if you think about it. It was the murder capital of the world. But as Lisa put it, honey, if 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 you try to live any place, and we had gotten married, remember, in law school, and we were in law school together for four years because we did it in four rather than three, and then we went down to Washington for two uh, and she said, "You can't permanently settle anyplace else. You won't be able to breathe after a while, and also nobody will understand that accent." The viewers. <laughs> uh, so, so I think we all we 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 were we were destined to be in New York, by, by birth and by the exhilaration. I mean, look, the the thing that unites a lot of what we've been talking about, including our, the foreshadowing of the global network, is Charlie's maxim play another octave of the piano right well there's no urban piano in the world that has as many registers and keys as new york city mm-hmm. and and if you've been in, if you've been taught to reach out and touch as much as you can touch yeah. uh the, it's axis mundi
0: yeah great and then the other thing i want to ask you about you mentioned that no law school had done what what you had done in terms of being able to recruit stars from the other top places to bring them all together, um, you have described yourself from the start as someone who is first and foremost a teacher. That 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 that's how you kind of define yourself in excellence. But of course, the coin of the realm for law schools as well as other top parts of research universities is publication. And so when you were defining the stars you wanted to bring, was it about their academic publication reputation, in terms of that, or as great teachers, or both. How were you thinking about the stars to build the law school?
1: Well, first of all, I I want to emphasize this that that both uh, as dean and as president, uh, I did not arrogate to myself uh, the right of definition. Um, I, I I I had a way of looking at things, which would say about that particular dichotomy between uh, being one of the leading thought creators in the world and being one of the leading teachers in the world is a false dichotomy. Uh, I, uh, if we were really going to build the, the law school or the university that we sought there was no reason why we should compromise either. So uh, Ronald Dworkin, who won the lifetime, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in philosophy, was one of the great teachers that I've ever seen. Uh, Anthony Amsterdam, uh, who is universally recognized as having created a whole change a paradigm around clinical legal education wrote a student note that gave the Supreme court its first amendment overbreath doctrine and was one of the smartest people in the world as a, a a law reformer, but anybody that ever took a course with Tony remembers it as the high point So, I mean, Arthur Miller who is the leading person in the world in civil procedure I mean, literally, encyclopedias is a legendary classroom teacher. So I, I think it's a false dichotomy, uh, and and we, it, what 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 I said to the faculty, and it, it, you have to understand that at the law school, the faculty operates as a committee of the whole. No one's hired unless two thirds of the faculty vote for them, either as an entry level or an advanced uh, lateral hire. Uh, but but I, I, my role was to encourage the faculty to, uh, without compromise, avoid that dichotomy. And I think we succeeded in in, in, in doing it. You could yep. go down the list. I mean, uh, uh, you know, when you have a faculty that includes, on the one hand, Richard Stewart, whom I'm proud to say holds uh, uh, the John Sexton professorship. He was my teacher at Harvard. He came to us 25 years ago, arguably the top person in the world on administrative law, the administrative state. You combine... That with Brian Stevenson, who's had two movies made about him, <laughs> you know, and and, and who was yep. mesmerizing as any preacher I ever heard. This is not a faculty where that dichotomy means right. a lot.
0: Well, and so you you set your sights at extremely high to get people who excelled at both, right? Right, and
1: and most of all, I mean, the, the differentiating principle that we offered, and this was both at the law school. And at the university. And here I became, nobody came to the NYU Law School faculty. I can't say this for the university. There you delegate to to, to trusted deans and chairs and so forth. But no one came to NYU Law School during my 14 years as dean without spending, imagine this now, my friend David, when you see the verbosity that comes with me, without spending probably 20 hours with me. Wow. Wow. And I would do it under the guise of uh, 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 showing them the possibilities for living in New York, but uh, riding around with me in my car to—I uh, used to call it—quote, visiting the faculty in their habitat. Close <laughs> quote. And I, because I was recruiting the family, nice. and I wanted to show them the different possibilities, so they didn't get stereotyped into a particular view, Manhattan-centric or whatever. Uh, and, and, and as I drove around with them and at least a spouse if there was one and sometimes with children um, what I was judging was whether they were what we used to call common enterprise players whether they they saw the agenda of of excellence uh, as more important than a personal agenda and just two quick things on that I, I, I I uh, I always kept a copy of Dr. Seuss's book The Sneetches on my table. Uh you'll remember that's the story where a fellow That's
0: event- not one of the 6 that were banned. That was no. what he wrote later.
1: That's that but in any case it's uh it's a story about someone who invents a machine that can put a star in your belly to give you status. And a village goes wild for these stars. Yeah. Then when everybody has a star, but it's not removable, he invents another machine that can remove it, and that creates the status, not to have one. Yeah. And the town goes back and forth between this meaningless yeah. status symbol. Yeah. And, and and I would always point to it when faculty would come to me with something which was really just in an, an the biblical phrase, a moat in the eye. You know, yeah. it was, you know, yeah. uh, why don't I have something? Which upon yeah. deeper analysis, with the power of the parish priest, yeah. it could be revealed to be a bit embarrassing yeah. that it had even come up. Well, well, you, you know, the, the common enterprise player, and, and this was actually recorded. It's an interesting uh, historical record. There's a, I don't know how the New York Times magazine got on this. It certainly wasn't from us. But uh, sometime around two thousand two, two thousand three, there's a New York Times magazine article that traces my very first conversation with an academic department after being named dean. Uh, after being named president, I'm sorry. And I went to the economics department, and I walked in, and of course, you know, here I was the law school dean. But I had some wind behind my sails, even though I had there had been no search. I had just you know, there were a lot of reasons for the faculty to resist my becoming president. Sure. But and, and but the the best of them were encouraging, and I arrived at this economics department and I, I'd asked to meet because of the centrality of economics in the modern university and because I saw a possibility, and I said to them, "Look, you folks call yourselves a top ten department. Nobody." outside of your department thinks you're a top 10 department. But I'm telling you right now that if you embrace a certain set of values, we'll invest the resources because we need a top five department. And this is what I want you to think about. Uh, Are you willing to embrace what we call at the law school, the common enterprise? In other words, rather than another emolument for yourself, would you rather have another colleague who can contribute to the enterprise? Number two, will you be dedicated to working with other departments, uh, you know, moving away from simple rational choice theory to embrace sociology, psychology, and so forth and so on, for example? Third, will you be committed to undergraduate education, really teaching undergraduates as I've been doing as dean of the law school for the last 10 years? Uh, And and, and third, will you uh, begin seriously to take the treasure of your doctoral students, uh, as something to be stewarded, not, not something to, to be, uh, uh, used. Uh, a week later in a secret ballot, they voted unanimously to accept that. I had said to them at that meeting, if you accept these students, there's this guy at Stanford that I'm talking to that I think I can persuade to come from Stanford to, uh, NYU, and begin to build you into a department that's recognized everywhere as a top five department, because he's going to win the Nobel Prize. His name is Tom Sargent. And I named him. They voted to say yes. Tom came. Uh, over the next decade, four NYU professors won the Nobel Prize in economics. Wow. Pretty impressive. Well, it, it but but I, I wasn't the one to know that Tom Sargent. I, I didn't know enough about economics to yeah. know that he was going to win it or, uh, you, you know let alone that there was this guy Paul Roma who would win, win it or, you know there's a whole that, that you just learn to you use your Brooklyn street smarts to know who the people are that are smart enough yeah. <laughs> to, to find
0: those folks
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah
0: so just as 1980 might not be the most auspicious time to pick to to build NYU and go there, um, 2001 right after nine 11 doesn't seem the, the most auspicious time to, to, to put in this innovative model of a global university. How did you go about just coming into the presidency a few months later, nine 11 happens to, to, to make that vision a reality?
1: So I was named in May, 2001 and, uh, We had created something at NYU. Now, now, at the NYU Law School, we had created something that had the word global in it. And we called it the Global Law School Program. But interestingly, it was 180 degrees different from what became the Global Network University. And, and, And one of the worries about me when I became president was that I was going to take this law school globalization model that I had done and, and transform it. And I spent a lot of time in the transition year. Uh, my, my predecessor, Jay Oliva, we agreed would stay around until June, 2002 and do the ceremonial work. And it was agreed because I, the decision, I didn't make the decision till March to accept the trustees offer. And this is now May. So so we hadn't started a search for the law school. So in, in, in that year, 2001, 2002, I was both right. dean of the law school and president of the university yep. elect, so to speak. Right. But I would run a transition. And I asked a senior member, Norman Dawson, a widely respected member of the law school faculty who was, I always referred to him as the Uber dean at the law school. Uh, he had been the head of the ACLU during its glory days and so forth. Great, great man. Uh, uh, I'd asked him to run with three people I had recruited, two from the Clinton administration, Jack Lou, who had been director of Office of Management and Budget, and Cheryl Mills, who had been White House counsel, and then an extraordinary woman named Diane Yu that I had recruited. She was uh, at Monsanto in the general counsel's office, uh, deputy general counsel, and I had recruited her. She was the head of the Section on legal education, kind of, kind of the outside lawyer that interfaced with with the deans about the future of legal education, and and I had these three remarkable people. So that quartet, I said, we're going to do a transition year and 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 develop a strategic thinking and develop the ratio studiorum. I I, I didn't yet know the words global right. network university, and I spent a lot of time saying, no, 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 it's not going to be what we did at the law school because what we did at the law school was really this idea of of creating a community at Washington Square and the global part was recognizing that there were voices to be heard from outside the United States that no one in American legal education was listening to. You know, like there'd been some great legal systems around, some of them for thousands of years, you know, and we, and nobody else, it was like, it was like being the Dodgers or Yankees and drafting international players before anybody ever thought of drafting international players. You know, we, we, we had a list of the 20 top people we wanted. We got all 20. Nobody else was drafting. You know, and, and we didn't ask them to come to leave uh, Bay Dar or Seoul right. National or, or, or uh, uh, the University of Paris. They would come for seven weeks each year. And they could fit that in with their schedules, but they were regular members of the family. Yep. So that you know wasn't what became the global network at all. So, but but uh, so the, gradually, Jay, Jay was going to do the ceremonial. I was going to work with the four on the transition. And gradually, I would ramp up the tactical within an emerging strategy was the thought. Then 9-11 happened. And the day after 9-11, I called the deans together, and, and I said uh, to them, "Look, uh, this is not the time for strategy. We don't know whether there's going to be another attack. The the the, the attack 9/11 itself right. w- was on Tuesday, yep. and we, we, there may be an attack before the end of the week." Uh, and w- the first decision we had to make is that Saturday we had two thousand people coming for a, an admissions open house to campus. Oh. Were we going to call it off or not? You know, and 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 uh, uh, we ended up saying to people, "We are rescheduling, but you have the option to come." And roughly half the people rescheduled, so only a thousand pre-registered people came. 2,000 that had not registered came because, so we had 3,000 people because people wanted a place to be. Yeah. And and what I said to the deans on that Wednesday was, uh, it's not the time for strategic decisions, but but I have made one. From this moment on, we are not going to refer to ourselves as New York University. We are going to call ourselves the New York University we are going to affirm our connection with New York because the city is, and remember we were in Greenwich village. Everything was locked down below 14th street. Yeah. So, and we could smell the burning yeah. flesh. I mean, this uh, this wasn't just the, the
0: global phenomenon. This was only a, only a little distance from your headquarters, your
1: campus. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm telling you, it yeah. was, the skies were gray and yeah. you could smell the burning flesh and, and, You know, my my eighth grade daughter was giving food to the first responders with her classmates and so forth and so on. So this was very real to us. We had to arrange specially to truck in food uh, to feed the folks in the dorms. And, and of course, staff had to stay because, uh, you uh, you know, uh, so the New York University. And uh, that week or the week after we signed a lease on three floors of the Woolworth Building, downtown, closer to the World Trade Center. And we said, it was the, I think it was the first lease on major space signed in New York City. And a week later, Justice O'Connor came up and we broke ground on the first new building to break ground, which I'm happy to say is named for a great man, a man who was my brother who died about five years ago now, Jay Furman. Furman Hall at the law school was dedicated by Justice O'Connor within two weeks of 9-11. And we said, we're affirming because, and and then the idea of the global network and all the stuff I have told you about, Dan was still dormant. If you look at my inauguration speech, there's not a mention of it, but the teleology I think was stimulated, you know, because if you, if you take the view of the presidency, and this is probably a good place for us to end this this session okay but uh, if you take the view of yep. the presidency that i have you don't it, it's not that you're given the right to define you're called to identify and tell the story of the deep soul of the institution whether it be the law school or the university that deep soul and and then you put it on offer to the community as a as a mythos as a, as a story of the community and you see if they respond and if they if they don't yep. respond okay they, they, right in the wake of of yep. September the 11th okay i wrote an essay you could look it up probably on my website it's called the moral surge mm-hmm. and it was a very it was a, a kind of pastoral essay to to the NYU community, and to New York City. It was published in one of the papers as as an op-ed. And I said, we're at a Teardian moment. I can feel in New York that we have moved through a critical threshold and we are operating at a higher moral plane as a community. We have to capture this. And NYU has a role in capturing this. And at this time, believe it or not, hard as it is to believe 20 years later, Rudolf Giuliani was saying the right things. He went sour about two or three weeks later and began (laughs) to become very self-referential. But but in any case, that moral surge and a great, great man who was then dean of the dental school. Later on, when Jack Lew uh, moved on, he became the COO slash CFO of the university, the executive uh, uh, vice president of the university, Mike Alfano. Mike came to me and said, because he's a very Teardian Catholic. He said, This is a brilliant essay. We must do this. Six months later, he came to me and he said, You know, you're a real disappointment to me. And I said, What do you mean, oh. Mike? He said, Well, you he said, Well, you wrote that essay and and you've not done anything on it. And I looked at him and I said, Mike, you're the first person among our leadership to talk to me about that essay since I wrote it. Uh I put it on offer. And if people don't pick up the offer, fine you know, I am putting on offer stories that are meaningful to me. If it turns out there's no story that I put on offer that resonates with the community, then I should move back to teaching. That's what I love. But if one of them catches on, then we'll march together and I'll pour myself into it. And the one that caught on within a year or two was this notion of being the world's first ecumenical university. And, and, uh, it didn't we didn't have a plebiscite on it, but hundreds of faculty got behind it, ultimately thousands. and today it's deep into the personality of the university but But it's because people responded. That's great. good. Well, as you say
0: let's let's pause it there and then come back and talk about how that model evolved. Great. Thank
1: you so much, John. Thanks, thanks for your time, David.